Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you for the next 60 minutes as we'll continue to break down the latest news and notes surrounding the New York Giants and also look ahead to the 2020 NFL Draft plus answer your Twitter questions. But we're going to start things off with the latest school to cover, and that is Utah. And we are now joined by a very special guest, former Utah tight end, who you could hear on SiriusXM Pac-12 Radio. He hosts the daily show Pac-12 Today, and that is none other than Sean O'Connell. Sean, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time this morning. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Yeah, doing good out here. I'm in Salt Lake City. It's uh, shaping up to be a beautiful morning so far, and let's hope it stays that way. And yeah, hopefully you and yours are healthy as well, and that goes for everyone listening. Absolutely. Well, we are very glad to hear that. And the reason why we wanted you on is to break down what is considered one of the deepest collegiate classes entering the NFL draft. And let's start with arguably their best prospect. That's corner Jalen Johnson. Seemed to be a ball hawk over the course of his three seasons. Very aggressive and built for press coverage. What has jumped out to you, Sean, about Jalen Johnson's play? Well, one thing that's really interesting about Jalen Johnson is, you know, the University of Utah does a great job finding diamond-in-the-rough sort of guys, right? It's not all about winning these recruiting battles with highly rated prospects. It's oftentimes them identifying a talent that's going to take some development, and, you know, they get him into the program, he goes through, he trusts the process, and out on the other end, you get a a high-quality NFL prospect. Jalen Johnson is one of the few guys that has come to the University of Utah that said, look, you're going to have me for three years. I'm going to start as a freshman, I'm going to play my way through, and I'm going to go pro as soon as I can. I want to provide for my family, I want to achieve the NFL dream. It's always been his plan to be this guy. And that's not a novel thing at other schools, but that is a novel thing at the University of Utah. And, you know, he put in the necessary work all the way through to make it a reality for himself. Uh, He's a nice, good-sized guy, you know, six feet plus, almost 200 pounds. He's got all the measurables necessary. But he's also a guy that sort of cherishes the role of taking on an opposing team's best pass-catching threat. You know, it's not typical for Kyle Whittingham and Morgan Scally and the Utah coaches to use a guy as a spy, to have him follow uh, the, the the opposition's best player. And with Jalen Johnson, they started doing that because he's that kind of a shutdown guy. So if you can get a dyed-in-the-wool old-school coach like Kyle Whittingham to deviate from some of his tendencies because of your talent, that should jump out to everybody. Well, you mentioned his attitude, and I think to be honest with you, Sean, I love the fact that he can handle the press coverage stuff because in the NFL, if you can do that, you know, if you can get tough and physical and feisty with these guys coming right out of the box, it's going to give you a much better chance to succeed. Absolutely. And it's it's become sort of a requisite for, for people who are going to play the corner position at the University of Utah. For a long time, uh, they brought people in and said, look, you're going to play press man coverage here. If it's something that you're comfortable doing, great. We're not going to hide your deficiencies in the zone. We're not going to give you as much help over the top as other schools. We're going to be blitzing aggressively all the time, which means, yeah, you might get to come off the boundary now and again, but more often you're going to be placed on an island. So they definitely appeal to guys who are up for that challenge, and Jalen is probably the best example in the last five years uh, of a guy that has all the tools to do it, has the right attitude to do it, 
and that's why he's in this draft with such a great. Sean, I was reading that he underwent surgery in March after the combine to repair a torn labrum in his shoulder, and apparently he played through that in 2019. Do you know how much that was a hindrance at all or how much of a concern that is for perhaps NFL teams given the fact that he's coming off of surgery? I've been told it's not a concern moving forward. Um, the labrum is obviously... it's. It's a pretty routine thing for an orthopedist at this point. Um, recovery is relatively quick compared to some of the other surgeries guys have to go through. And I think, you know, depending on the, the personnel department, I think that a lot of NFL teams, when they realized, wow, this guy was playing through uh, what other people might consider to be a very serious injury, they like that. You know, the best ability is availability. And someone who's not going to find every excuse to get himself off the field at the college level, it's probably going to translate into the NFL where he's going to play through some things, some bumps and bruises that might otherwise keep him out. So everything I've heard so far is that it's not a concern moving forward. I think it was a bit of a hindrance for him, especially in tackling, not so much in the skills of breaking up balls and things like that, but in tackling, he might have been uh, limited in some way, still doesn't really show much on the tape because his other abilities kind of mask. Were there often situations where they would, well, I should say often, I should say, were there occasional situations where he had to do run support? Uh, what was his mentality in terms of handling that? And when you talk about him shadowing guys, would he shadow guys into the slot as well as taking them on the boundaries? Well, they didn't really ask him to do the slot duties a lot because Javelin Gidry is another guy who's in this draft who, uh, you know, he's the fastest guy on the University of Utah's team, one of the fastest guys in this draft class. And so they didn't they didn't feel a need to sort of um, overcompensate for him if the best pass catcher was in the slot. But um, when in response to your tackling question, your, your run support question, you know, there are Quinton Jammer type corners who like to get up in there. They stick their face mask in. They're big time hitters. I wouldn't put Jalen in that category, but whatever's right beneath it, a guy who's a sure tackler, uh, doesn't mess up, uses the boundary, uses the sideline in order to, uh, to, you know, as that extra tackler, he's very technically sound. And he's a guy that when he has to, he's going to sacrifice his body, but he's also intelligent about it. He's not one of these people that's just going to go flying into a pile and get jammed up. He's he's a, a calculated, skilled tackler. We're talking with Sean O'Connell, former Utah tight end. You can hear him on Sirius XM Pac-12 Radio. And it's not just Johnson in the secondary. They have a few other notable players. And I want to move to the safety spot, Sean. Terrell Burgess, who really emerged, it seemed, this past season. Just one season as a starter. He played 14 games this year. And he seemed to make quite the name for himself. What changed this year? Was it simply playing time? Or was it something in terms of his individual performance that really sent his stock straight up? You know, it was a little bit of both. He was given an off-season challenge to to emerge and to be that guy because, uh, you know, the Morgan Scally, who is the defensive coordinator, safeties coach, and former Utah safety himself, he looked around his room and he said, guys, we're going to have to move Julian Blackman to the safety position. Terrell, you're going to have to step up and you're going to have to continue this. They, they throw a hashtag on it, this safety pride tradition. And it's... It's a loaded room when you talk about the guys that have come through and come out of there. So he was given that challenge, and he always had the tools. Um, and, you know, he, I think he probably stepped up his work ethic a little bit. He's an excellent teammate, uh, got in there, studied more, 
and had a better mastery of a defense that for safeties is sometimes relatively complicated. But the results showed, you know, on the field this year, everyone else was talking about Julian Blackman. Everyone talked about the transition his his running mate back there was making from the corner spot, how he was the big-time NFL prospect, all that stuff. And Terrell just quietly worked and worked and worked and put together an all-conference season because of it. And that's the exact kind of guy Kyle Whittingham likes, and I think NFL teams are going to recognize that also. Well, you mentioned the transition from corner. Both, both Blackman and Burgess had originally been corners, though, and I think that you know, a lot of times in the NFL, many a times, I should say, they'll talk about guys who oh, can't play corner anymore. We'll just convert them to safety. And it's almost kind of like a downgrade. And then some of them turn out to be great safeties anyway, like Ronnie Lott did. <laughs> you know? yeah, but, yeah. but for a guy to be able to do that in his college career, do you think that enhances their chances to make it at the pro level now that they've established themselves as safeties? Absolutely, I do. You know, and I've seen, by the way, Terrell Burgess specifically. He's been graded as as a slot defender, also for people. So I, there are people who are eyeing him potentially as a nickel corner in this class. I think he's much better suited to play the safety spot. That's why he ended up there. But uh, the fact that they have that kind of versatility—I mean, being a specialist is great. If you're one of the best five in the league at that position, and that's the only thing you have to do. But when you're a guy in Terrell Burgess's category, better be a good special teams tackler right you better be a guy that's willing to run down on punt coverage you better be a guy that'll play safety or corner or in the slot or wherever else they want you because you got to maximize your value to a team and he has demonstrated the ability to play multiple positions at a very high level i don't know what more you can ask of a guy as far as blackman is concerned sean he suffered a non-contact knee injury in the pac-12 title game What's the outlook in terms of his recovery there? And connected to that, I was looking at the fact that part of the reason I believe that he moved from corner to safety was there were some concerns and issues over his coverage. Has that improved or has that changed since he made the change in position? Well, his press man abilities is, I guess it would have been junior season, were called into question a couple of times. He was exposed in a couple of situations that proved to be costly for the team. Now, to his credit, his bounce-back performances still made him an all-conference guy. So uh, did he get exposed a couple of times? Yes, he did. But find me a corner who hasn't in their career, especially yeah. when they're asked to play in a defense like that. Um yeah, and I, I think the, the move was actually uh, more maximizing all of the bodies they had in the program. This is something that every college coach does, but the University of Utah staff has done for a very long time. They say, we need to maximize, get the best 11 guys on the field. The position they play is less important than the fact that they're one of the best 11 on defense out there. And they looked at the departing talent. They looked at what they had coming back at the corner spot, nickel corners, and they said, we can use Julian Blackman as a safety. It's a position he played a little bit of in high school. He's shown versatility. He's got the size to play safety. He's a really intelligent kid, and you have to be that in order to, to take over that spot in Morgan Scally's defense. So I think that, yes, his press man coverage, there you can find some things, some moments where he got exposed. But I think it was more of a move based on optimism and positivity that he would absorb the duties of a safety very well. And he did. Um, obviously, the injury is very unfortunate. It was costly for them in that championship game. Took some wind out of the sails of the team because he's one of the most popular guys on the team. And, of course, they had to go to – they ended up having to play a guy in his spot who was 
basically getting his first real time. The brother of Panay Sewell, the much more famous Nephi Sewell, is in that Utah defensive backfield, and he had to come in. And when you're behind Julian Blackman and Terrell Burgess, he didn't really play that much all year. So suddenly he's thrust into a situation in the championship game and the bowl game where now he's got to be the guy, and it was it was asking a lot of him. But uh, it's really unfortunate Julian Blackman didn't get to go to the combine. Now he's one of these pro day guys, and how much are teams you know really taking into consideration the, the non-combine guys? I don't know if he'll be drafted. He might get signed as a free agent. He might be a sixth or seventh round pick. And had he stayed healthy, had he gone to the combine, I think we'd be talking about probably more like a fourth or fifth rounder. Well, let's talk about one of the day two picks for sure. That's edge rusher Bradley Anye, who, uh, boy, what a motor on him. Every time I look at tape, Sean, I, I have to tell you, I'm impressed at how he gets after it. Good burst. I love his moves off the edge. Very dynamic pass rusher. I'm a bit concerned, though, about his coverage skills and also his ability to, to be stout against the run, but that's not how he's going to make his money in the, in the NFL anyway. What do you see from him and his pro prospects? Yeah, Bradley Anai has been a staple in this program, and part of his longevity, part of the fact that, you know, part, part of the reason he has such great stats is because he's been a consistent producer since he was his true freshman year. He leaves the Utah program as the all-time sack leader, uh, and that's something he's obviously very proud of. That's one of the reasons he came back for this year, because he had an option to go into the draft uh, this past year. He wouldn't have been a day-two pick had he gone, but, you know, he would have been making money already. He's he's one of those guys that the questions are about, has he reached his peak already? Has, is, you know, you, you talk about the moves that he has. He's got three, four pass rush moves. He's got excellent hands, um, but NFL teams look at him and they say, all right, this is a fairly polished technical player. Is he going to continue to improve, or are we getting everything out of him? Because if this is it, I don't know if he's – a second round guy. Maybe he's more like a third or fourth round guy. But Bradley and I has demonstrated throughout his career that if he has a deficiency, he's going to work and work and work until that deficiency becomes a strength. That's exactly what happened with his hand fighting. When he was a freshman, he was all about his burst, his quick step off the edge. And then he realized, wow, I'm going up against all conference future NFL players. They're going to be able to get their hands on me and lock me down. So what did he do? He learned Excellent hand-fighting techniques. He learned to string two and three moves together. The question for his coverage, he's never going to be an elite coverage guy. Don't draft right. him if you want him to be dropping back uh, into the flats or you want him to have to run with the, some of the elite athlete tight ends in this league. He's just not going to be able to do it. But if you want a big-time pass rusher who's going to kind of develop the chess match and he's going to get you big sacks and big stops and knockdowns in the third and fourth quarter, Bradley and your guy. Well, and the sack production certainly jumps off the page. The fact that he's got nearly 28 sacks over the course of the last three seasons. My big question, though, Sean, is, and you mentioned he's an elite pass rusher, where do you see him on the next level? There's debates about, is he a stand-up linebacker? Is he a hand-in-the-dirt defensive end? Where do you see his ideal fit? I think he's a hand-in-the-dirt defensive end is where he's going to have success. He'll be a willing participant if you make him a stand-up linebacker, but the best version of Bradley and I is a guy playing with his hand in the dirt. And he might have to bulk up a little bit in order to be that guy at the NFL level. But we've seen this before with Utah's other best pass rushers where they've gone to the league and they're a bit of a tweener body. So they, they get 
transition to that stand-up outside linebacker in a 3-4 scheme, and they're asked to do more in pass coverage, and it just doesn't work out as well. Bradley and I has tape, hours and hours of tape, on being an elite pass rusher with his hand in the dirt. Keep him there. I tell you something, Sean, there's one thing I know he's not afraid of anything because when he was at the combine, he was telling us about the cliff diving exploits that he takes. And I don't know <laughs> if any NFL teams are going to want him to keep doing that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, those uh, those kids from Hawaii, man, if you live, he grew up in Laie, not too far from the iconic Kahuku High School. And that means Laie Point is right around the corner. And you cannot grow up in that town without jumping off those rocks. So that's that's going to be something that he does for the rest of his life. As far as the other defensive linemen, they've got two defensive tackles of note, Lecky Fotu and then John Penasini. What is the difference between both of them? Fotu clearly, I think, has had the stronger resume, but what do you see in terms of the upside of both of those players, Sean? Well, if we were talking about this draft 10 years ago when the two-gap run-stopping defensive tackle was more of a fashionable item in NFL football, you'd be talking about Lecky Fotu as, you know, a late day one, a late first round, maybe early second round guy because he's massive. He's freakishly quick for that size. Uh, he, he suffers for being... Uh, a player in kind of the wrong era of NFL football. He's, I don't want to compare him. I don't want to say he's Halotinata because that's, you know, a potential future Hall of Famer, but he has that kind of freakish size and, and ability. The, the way the kid moves uh, for someone who's, you know, pushing 340 pounds at times, it's just uncanny. It, you don't see that very often. I mean, if we were back in medieval times, he'd be walking around with a battle axe and he'd be the king of us <laughs> all. It's just, he's a scary, scary dude. So he's got to find a system that values that, right? Because his interior pass rush is good, but not elite, not an Aaron Donald type guy. You need a defense where he's going to be asked to gobble up blockers. He's going to be asked to stop the run inside. He will excel at that for the rest of his career. John Penasini, smaller. Uh, a little bit more versatile in terms of the fact that I think he can play really anywhere on that defensive line with his hand down, and he's going to be a quality backup at the NFL level. Really, really excellent player in the Pac-12, but does he have the physical tools to be dominant in the NFL? Probably not. Lecky Fotu does. John Penasini doesn't. He's an excellent player. I, I think he'll be a career backup, though. I wrote down a couple of NFL names as I was looking at some of the Utah cutups, and for Fotu, I wrote down Tony Saragusta. How about that one? <laughs> Lecky is a better athlete than Tony Saragusta, but probably, <laughs> that, would be, that would be an unbelievable dinner. I would love to go to dinner with those two guys and just hear them jump. <laughs> I promise you, you some good stories. The, the other name I wrote down was Frank Gore when I compared Zach Moss to somebody who I had seen before because this running back is, is is quite the force. He's an unbelievable player. His measurables don't really do him justice. Uh, he didn't run the 40 that he wanted to at the combine. I think that's going to hurt him. He did better in his pro day, but again, these pro days were not attended by NFL uh, staff, and so you got to trust the electronic timer or you got to trust whoever stopwatch it was on. There's a lot of nuance to those conversations, as you guys well know. But Zach Moss runs harder after contact than almost any back 
in all of college football. In fact, you can look up the stats, the advanced stats of him getting yards after contact, and especially from his junior year, he was better at it than anybody in the country. He had big numbers behind uh, the last two years, just okay offensive lines, especially his senior season was just an okay offensive line. Catches the ball well out of the backfield, very cerebral player, not going to get in trouble, exactly the kind of guy you want on your team. The only reason I can't give him the high praise of a Frank Gore comparison is because Frank Gore, he, he might be a Hall of Famer because of his longevity alone, yeah. because of his durability alone. And Zach, sure. he's had some injury problems, and I know teams are a little bit worried about that, especially with the way the running back position is now. I mean, Christian McCaffrey and that huge contract he got notwithstanding, teams know that you can find a Zach Moss every other year in the draft and you don't have to pay this guy for three to five years. So I hope he gets in. I hope he gets healthy and, uh, you know, I hope he gets paid and gets out. Yeah. He had that season ending surgery on his meniscus, which is what you were just referencing. That was before the start of last season in which he was extremely productive. How much Sean is his running style a bit concerning and maybe a contributing factor to those durability questions? You know, it's interesting because he, his sophomore and junior year, he sought out contact a lot more than he probably should. His senior year, I think he started to make better executive decisions. He takes a lot fewer direct hits than you might imagine for a guy who's built like a bowling ball. Uh, and that's something he's going to have to convince NFL teams of. And look, I, I'm not a guy who's going to go in and, and just make dumb decisions and get myself blasted when I can avoid or I can get out of bounds, or I can get down. Um, it's something that's probably counterintuitive for him because he is such a competitor. But like I said before, he's a really, really sharp cat, and he's got good leadership behind him, or good, I should say good support staff behind him, all these people that are trying to help him make that, this decision and make this transition. I think that they're, they're getting in his ear, or they've gotten in his ear, and said, look, if there's going to be a concern about you, it's going to be your longevity and your health. So let's do what we can to maximize that. And it reflected itself a little bit in the tape his senior year. So hopefully that's the case moving forward. Well, he's certainly a fun fire hydrant to watch. That, that's about all I can say from, from being able to look at some of that tape. And, and I think whoever gets him is certainly going to get his best effort. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, if you want to Zach, watch Zach Moss, some of his best runs, and you probably identified this already, some of his best runs – Somebody gets a hand on him three yards in the backfield, and he still turns it into a three-yard gain. It's not sexy. Yeah. It's not a big breakaway touchdown, but it's something that makes him valuable at the next level because he refuses to take a loss. We're talking with Sean O'Connell, former Utah tight end. You can hear him on Sirius XM Pac-12 Radio. Sean, last one for me. The other guy that I wrote down, just switching gears to the defensive side of the ball, Javelin Guidry, who it looks like could be a slot corner at the next level. He certainly has speed. I guess maybe there's questions about whether his size could match up elsewhere. Where do you see him transitioning as he tries to make the move to the NFL? Yeah, he's going to have to be a slot corner. He does have just freakish, freakish speed. I mean, I actually, I think he had the second fastest uh, time, 40 time at the combine this year, and he was sorely disappointed. He thought he <laughs> had a real shot to to break the record because, you know, he's one of the, the best short-distance track runners in, in the NCAA. He had in high school, he lived in California and in Texas uh, over the span of his high school career, and he set state records 
in both places in sprints. So the kid's got real speed, but uh, because of that size, because of the limitations of his, his length and some of that, he's going to have to be a slot corner. Uh, I think you could probably put him back there to return punts, and that'd be fun to watch. But um, he, he is a specialist, and that obviously hurts you at the NFL level when there's only one place for you to fit. Absolutely. He is Sean O'Connell, former Utah tight end. You can hear him on Sirius XM Pac-12 Radio. Sean, greatly appreciate the time and the inside. I hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy and hopefully get back on the field to talk X's and O's sooner rather than later. Thanks so much. Yeah, let's, uh, let's get back to normal, guys. Stay healthy. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Sean O'Connell, former Utah tight end and Sirius XM Pac-12 radio host for joining us to break down the Utah class. We're now going to stay on the subject of the 2020 NFL Draft, but switch gears to Wisconsin. And we are now joined by a very special guest because he has a connection to Big Blue. He played four seasons for the New York Giants as an offensive lineman. He's now a sports talk show host for ESPN Radio 100.5 FM in Madison, Wisconsin, and that is none other than Derek Engler. Derek, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Everything's great, Lance. Paul, appreciate you having me. Um, you know, I, having lived out in, you know, New Jersey, New York area, and, and uh, knowing, you know, what everybody's been going through out there across the country, but uh, having lived out there and knowing it being the epicenter and what New York's had to go, uh, go through, uh, I can only send out my best wishes, uh, prayers to everybody out there, um, because I know that's a completely different situation than anywhere else in the country. Um, and I, I wish you guys all the best, and hopefully, you know, sooner than later, we'll get back to some normalcy here. Well said, and we certainly appreciate that, Derek, and very glad to hear that you and yours are doing well. Let's try to distract all of us, and that's getting back to the X's and O's of football, and Wisconsin has a few notable prospects. Let's start with linebacker Zach Bond, who clearly had an outstanding season in 2019. He was an AP second-team All-American. What do you attribute, Derek, to why Zach has made such significant strides going back to when he was a reserve linebacker back in 2016? Well, you know, at the University of Wisconsin, that, that linebacker position has, has served us well uh, in recent years, whether it's, you know, Joe Schobert, who recently signed with Jacksonville from Cleveland, whether it's T.J. Watt, whether it's, a, you know, a, a Vince Beagle or, or, you know, your own Ryan Connolly. Um, you know, wishing him the best in his, his uh, rehab from his torn ACL. And, you know, I had the, I was fortunate enough to be back for Giants alumni weekend. I think it was the second week in September against the Bills. And that was kind of Ryan's breakout game. And I think he had, you know, racked up some good numbers in the next couple of weeks before I think week four or five when he tore his ACL. And so we've always had a good tradition at Wisconsin in, in the, with linebackers. And, and it, it continues to be with, with Zach. And, Got to know Zach a little bit over the summer, and I'm going to attribute one thing, and it's character. Um, yeah, he's got great physical ability. There's no question. Um, he really can, uh, he understands, and I think really what he kind of impressed a lot of coaches, Badger fans, um, and, you know, people across the country is the way he could rush the passer. He understood how to dip that shoulder, really narrow the angle. Um, you know, he's got good speed. You know, he's got some decent hands, um, but character, I mean, I've known this kid for a little while now, and, and um, it's just, 
it's one of those intangibles that you can't measure. And they try to do the scouts and GMs, they try to do their best with that. Um, you know, but he, he loves the game. You know, he's your typical guy that, you know, the Patriots organization, does he love football? Does he, you know, eat, breathe, you know, does he, and that's him. And, um, you know, I think whoever ends up with him, he's going to be a hell of a pick. And I know his, his draft uh, stock is really skyrocketing. Derek, what are the things he's going to have to polish up as he takes it to the next level? And do you see him as a better fit in the NFL as, as a 3-4 stand-up guy or, or a 4-3 stand-up guy? Or would you like to see him put on 10 to 15 pounds and try to put his hand down? You know, I think he's going to be better suited for 3-4. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, I say this, you never know. You know, guys... Uh, give them a few years in the league and they transform their bodies, you know, I mean, that's uh, to, to mold whatever scheme or, or, you know, um, fits their, uh, you know, defense and, and personnel, um, you know, guys can change. And, and, you know, I think him putting weight on, you know, I think some of the success that he had in his senior year at Wisconsin was him losing weight. Um, so I, I would see him more suited to be in that 3-4. Derek, I was reading he started off as a dual-threat quarterback in high school and then actually converted right. to linebacker, which is interesting. I'm sure that helps from the cerebral aspect that you alluded to when it comes to being a football player. But that athleticism, how much do you see in terms of not just him being a pass rusher, but just the overall ability to cover sideline to sideline and really be that explosive player all around? How much does that come out? Well, I think tremendous. Uh, you know, I think he's um, he has it all. I think that's why, you know, you look at a lot of these mock drafts. Um, he not only can rush the passer, which he proved this year at Wisconsin, but he can cover out of the backfield. He's got that speed. You know, I think his his combine uh, times are really good, if I if I remember um, correctly. But you know, I think he he does have the whole package. If you look, I mean, if you look at ESPN, I think they have him number two. You know, as far as outside linebacker, um, and that's you know that's. That's saying a lot. That's saying, you know, pretty much uh, across the board in the National Football League, GM scouts, they really you know, think highly of, of this kid. There's another guy in that linebacker core I want to mention, and he doesn't get a whole lot of ink, at least not nationally, Derek. But when I looked at the Bond tape, Chris Orr kept sticking out to me. This is a guy who had double-digit sacks. I know he's undersized. I understand he may not even get drafted. Who knows? I, I'm sure he's probably not more than a third-day pick on a lot of real boards. But my goodness, the production and the motor on this guy. And I know he had the ACL injury in the past. Please, please give me a take on him and what his chances are of trying to fit on an NFL team. Well, Chris is, I mean... All he needs to do is get in the training camp, and he'll make that team. He's he's one of those guys. Um, you know, he's just there is no quit in him. He's nothing but leadership. He is strong as all get out, and you know, will will hit you coming downhill like a brick blank house. And I'm not kidding you. He can bring it. Now he is a little undersized, but you know what? How many NFL greats are, you know, before they came in, like, ah, he's a little undersized. And, and that, it doesn't matter what position. If you have some of those intangibles, which, you know, a lot of Wisconsin guys, I and mean, this is kind of we pride ourselves as a, a 
program. It's a developmental program. We don't get four and five star recruits. You know, I mean, if we get a couple fours, we're happy. But they're mainly threes, and we have a great walk-on program, and so on and so forth. I mean, Chris is part of that tradition, and we have guys that succeed at the next level in the NFL because of that work ethic and that type of character. And he's he's a pure epitome of that. I want to switch gears to the offensive side of the ball, and let's start in the trenches, which certainly is your M.O., Derek. And Tyler Biotish, the center who I'm sure has the ability to also play guard at the NFL level, is somebody that really jumps off the page. He was the nation's top center. He won the Remington Trophy this past season, AP First Team All-American It just seems as if this is the type of guy that is made for being the guy to orchestrate the offensive line and set your quarterback up very nicely. From being around him, from playing that position, why would he be such a good fit and transition smoothly from the collegiate level to the NFL level? Well, he's got, you know, a ton of games under his belt. And, you know, my nickname for him was always the pit bull. And he, even as, you know, uh, an underclassman, was really kind of a, a leader of that group, you know, despite, I think we lost three NFL guys last year in the offensive line from Wisconsin. Um, Tyler has always been a leader, and he always more of a leader by example on the field. But when you see a guy, you know, finishing to that little whistle, I mean, that's always him. And, you know, he doesn't back down from anything. Um, you know, he's another, you know, one of those big, you know, Wisconsin rural farm boy types and, and um, you know, strong. And, you know, I think he's got he's got better feet and quickness than I, what I think people give him. You know, um, you know, we're he and I were talking about he just had a um, a meeting or, you know, FaceTime or whatever, a phone call with, with the Giants uh, staff and coaches. And I was telling him what a first class organization was like we were talking uh, off air and and, um, you know, how they've created a family atmosphere from top down and, and you know, coaches, staff, alumni, players, you name it. Um, that's really hard to do in the NFL. And he said he couldn't agree more and how uh, pleased he was with the conversation he had with the Giants. And I know, I believe the Giants are looking for uh, inside offensive linemen. And, um, you know, I know they also are looking at uh, another guy in our, our league, uh, Ruiz, out of Michigan. And I said, well, you know, if, if, I told him I was coming on, on Giants.com with you guys, and he, he, I said, I'll just remind him that, you know, Michigan had 40 yards of rushing offense against our defense, so he couldn't have played that great against us. Isaiah Loudermilk, who's a nose guard for us, he's an underclassman, and I, I, he would intern with me, and I asked him, and he said, he played well against us, he's a good player. So I don't think... Uh, the New York Giants can go wrong with, with either player if they're looking at him. I know I've talked to them both, but, um, you know, uh, Tyler, obviously I'm biased, be a great fit. And, um, you know, the more badgers we can get, you know, out in big blue territory, the better. <laughs> Would his hip surgery give the reason for anybody to hesitate on him, uh, especially uh, understanding, you know, the big guys there in the trenches? I mean, that, that can be an impediment. Uh, what is your opinion on that situation? Well, you know, I, I always um, refrain from talking a lot about, um, you know, the, the medical condition of the guys, but I do know this. I, I can share that, you know, on our pro time day, I did have a personal conversation with him. He says his hip is great. Um, you know, he, he feels really good. 
Um, you know, and I, I think that's that's part of, as you guys know, um, if if the if the player has the work ethic to attack rehabilitation like he does everything else, um, you know, they usually come out of it stronger in the end, and he's one of those guys. And he wound up starting all 14 games last season after having that hip surgery in the spring of 2019. So I would think that that would be certainly an encouraging aspect. In terms of his ability in pass protection versus run blocking, Derek, is there a difference to you? Is there one area where you think he still needs to make some strides? What would be your evaluation of him from that standpoint? Well, I'll just, I'll be uh, up front. I mean, it's, you know, it's, pretty common um for especially uh, um you could say that for the tackles wisconsin's a little bit more balanced but we you know obviously we run the rock first and so our run blocking is second to none other than they always talk about who are the best offensive lines it's usually it's alabama wisconsin or Dame, you know whatever order depending on the year um ohio state might creep in there once once in a while but um there you just look at how many nfl guys each one of those schools produce and Wisconsin's always been known to have great run blockers. And, you know, for the most part, especially recent years in the last decade or so, um, you know, there has been really good pass blockers. Tyler, I think if there's one skill set he really needs to work on, I think, you know, getting with the right, um, you know, uh, position coach and and working with him. Um, Not to say that it was terrible. You know, it was was good. But I think, you know, at the next level, there's some certain techniques that he's going to have to, to learn uh, as far as center position, and he will. I mean, there's, he's no different than anybody else as far as pass protection is concerned. What about that guy in the backfield, Jonathan Taylor, who to me may be one of the most complete running backs coming out of this draft? So much to like about him, although I think sometimes the, some of the critics have, have written about his hands, but my goodness, his physical skill set, Derek, he's got it all. Yeah. Uh, another guy I got to know over the summer a little bit. Um, you know, uh, we we tend to Wisconsin uh, tends to do well out of that South Jersey area, whether it be uh, Ron Dane, Corey Clement, um, you know, Jonathan Taylor, um, and and JT. You know, I, I played with Ron Dane when he was a freshman, true freshman, when he broke Herschel Walker's freshman rushing record, and um, Ron had a lot of similar vision as Jonathan Taylor when Jonathan Taylor was a freshman. Uh, uncanny, you know, to be that young and to walk into a major uh, college program. And one of the, one of the um, situations that I remember the most, I was watching a, a scrimmage, August training camp, and they, give, they put JT in there, um, and he's a true freshman. And he's, he's run, and I'm watching from the end zone, so I, I, I see it all develop, but he had the patience you know, you typically, especially a, a, a freshman running back, is not going to have the patience. I mean, he, there is plenty of front side room to push that front side. But in his own offense, he had the patience and already understood that he's going to see a backside window. The left tackle does his job, cut it off. With the, with the rest of the movement and displacement of the defense, he saw that hole and boom, gone. And, you know, he was an all-state um, track star in Jersey as well. And he, his speed hit that. And, you know, I think you guys saw that or whatever film you've seen from last season, he had the ability to find and, and wiggle through that hole. Um, that that vision, that is, I mean, I know he's got all the physical attributes. I mean, he, the strength, speed, you name it. Hands was a criticism last year. 
he had he had more opportunities this year, and he, and he took advantage of them. Um, you know, I think you know there were some fumble issues this year more than the criticism of uh, receptions, you know, or dropping the ball. Um, you know, I, I, I think you can put any one of those three running backs, you know, you, whoever, you know, whether it's, it's Dobbins um, or the kid from LSU, it, it's a win on any one of those picks, in my opinion. You brought up the fumbling issues, fumbled 15 times over three years, the receptions, just 42 receptions in three years. The other thing that I've heard people bring up, Derek, is 968 touches in three seasons, which certainly is a lot, but to your point, he's been extremely productive. Though from the NFL evaluation standpoint, and we always hear the life shell for a running back is shorter than other positions. How concerning is it that he's had so many touches in just three seasons of college ball, in your opinion? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little old school in that respect. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, especially with these days and, and you know, with, with the NFL and the limitations they have on physical contact, practice time, and so on and so forth. I, that really doesn't concern me, especially you know at the college level. I don't I don't get into well, what's the wear and tear at the college level for Christ's sakes and 19, 20, 21, 22 year old kids. I mean, you know, I don't. That doesn't. That wouldn't concern me. Um, I guess we'll see. Um, but uh, he really had no physical issue, injury issues while at the University of Wisconsin. Another position on offense, I would say, is Quintez Cephas, the wide receiver who unfortunately had to deal with the off-the-field issue. He was accused of sexual assault before the 2018 season, missed that season, but he was acquitted of those charges last August, got back on the field this year, all Big Ten honorable mention. I guess before we get to the X's and O's, Derek, since you've gotten to know these players how much was that an issue in terms of him having to deal with the off-the-field issues, and how much do you think he's put that behind him since getting back on the field? Well, I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a, a major issue, and I don't want to get into you know the accusations and the legal process and everything, but it was it was a travesty, and I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, but for for someone um, like you to go through all of that um, and then still want to come back and play at the University of Wisconsin speaks volumes about, well, the program, but also his teammates and his coaches, um, you know, and then to come out and, and have the season that he did, particularly in the end when it meant everything against Minnesota, against Ohio State, make it, I mean, and, and, He's got strength now. I mean, I, I know his 40 time wasn't that great, and, you know, he might be looked more as a, a, a slot-type guy, but he's got a chip on his shoulder, and he, he wants to – I mean, he's he's a competitor. Um, I, you know, being here in Packerland, you know, we're all hoping, you know, Packers sneak him out in the third round, um, <laughs> which, which, which is a possibility. But it, I, he's going to be a very good player in the NFL, mark my word. Before we let you go, Derek, as we're talking with Derek Angler, former Giants offensive lineman who is a sports talk show host on 100.5 FM 
in Madison, Wisconsin. The thing that jumps out to me is his size, where he could be a great red zone target. He's made a lot of contested catches during his career. Is there more to his game? Because I've seen people bring up the concern about maybe he doesn't have the speed and the ability to separate. But is there a concern over that? Or does he do enough in your estimation that people shouldn't have to be overly worked up about that? I think he does uh, a lot more than what people um, understand. Um, you know, as far as the separation, I mean, I, you know, people forget, like, I think, I don't know if he had the record for the receiver position as far as the bench press at the combine was concerned, but it was close. Um, you know, he is very strong. Um, he'll be able to create separation. Um, you know, I, I, with his speed, you know, everybody forgets, too, you know, there's been a lot of great receivers. Um, you know, Tom Brady made a lot of them really good that probably didn't have the best speed, but they understood route running. And, and Quintez is one of those guys. Um, plus, he's a student of the game, loves studying the game. Um, and, and never mind, he also, I mean, you like blocking receivers, he got one. You know, that, uh, you know he, he can get down the field and block and, you know, has no problem sticking his nose in there. You know, I think the speed is what it is. It's, it's deceptive at times. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, four, three guys that, yeah, great you know, create separation, do nothing else and, I mean, or catch the ball. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I think there's too much criticism there. And like I said, I think he's a, he's a great steal in the, in the third round. He is Derek Engler. He's suited up for the Giants for four seasons from 1997 to 2000. You can now hear him on 100.5 FM in Madison, Wisconsin. Derek, greatly appreciate the time and the inside. I hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy and look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks so much. Be well, Lance Paul. You bet. Be well. Take care. Thanks to Derek Engler, former Giants offensive lineman and sports talk show host on 100.5 FM in Madison, Wisconsin, for joining us and breaking down the Wisconsin class. So for the remainder of the show, we're going to recap. Dave Gettleman and Kevin Abrams had a conference call yesterday, so we'll give you our thoughts on that front, and then we'll answer some of your Twitter questions. So, Paul, as I mentioned, both general manager Dave Gettleman, assistant GM Kevin Abrams spoke to the media, and this conference call was mainly on free agency. Dave Gettleman will speak again later in the week with Chris Pettit, the head of scouting, and they'll focus more on the draft, but they did give us plenty of thoughts on what was done on the free agency front, and let's start with some of our main takeaways, and one of the first things he was asked about was, of course, Leonard Williams, who they gave the franchise tag to, and he was asked, well, why did you decide to go with the franchise tag as opposed to the transition tag, which would have been a little bit less, and the two things that he said was, quote, felt really good about our cap space, end quote. And also, they took into consideration what they believe he brings to the table, warranted the franchise tag. Because remember, you give a player the transition tag, now all of a sudden he has the opportunity to talk with other teams. When it's the franchise tag, you know it's just a matter of you and him negotiating as opposed to anybody else. Well, I felt all along that the Giants were going to get a long-term deal done with Leonard Williams. I still feel that way. Gettleman's quote when asked about that was contracts get done when they are supposed to get done and he indicated that he had no apprehension at all regarding the potential distraction of the franchise tag with Williams which says to me that he and the player have to be on the same page there I don't necessarily think that Williams is going to complain or gripe about it or even make any kind of of holdout uh, uh, comments because Gettleman seemed to be extremely comfortable with the situation as it stood 
I'm with you, and that's why I don't think it was necessarily a surprise that that was what was Dave Gettleman's answer because I think we pretty much expected it to play out that way. He was also asked about, well, what about the negotiation process to try to hammer out a long-term deal before the season starts because he had brought up previously when you give the player the franchise tag, there's the concern about it being a distraction. Dave Gettleman, as he's mentioned time and time again, does not discuss contractual negotiations publicly, but he didn't seem overly concerned. His phrase, which he brings up all the time, contracts will get done when they get done. And keep in mind, July 15th is the deadline for a long-term deal. And right now, the calendar says April 14th. So it's not as if both sides are up against the clock right now. I'm not even sure that calendar will hold. The way things are fluid right now with uh, the entire society and the National Football League, who's to say that that deadline will stick? I think that's a very fair point. In terms of the offensive line, a lot of conversation about what the Giants have done at the tackle spot, where they may go in the draft. And he mentioned based on the moves they've made, which was essentially Cameron Fleming, who they brought in in free agency. This was an interesting comment, quote, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, Paul. Felt with the depth of the tackle class in the draft, we just felt this was the best way for us to go, end quote. Now, my interpretation, I'm curious your thoughts. I read into that saying that they must feel pretty good about multiple options in the draft at the tackle spot because he certainly emphasized with the depth of the class, which means as if it doesn't necessarily say that they wouldn't address the offensive line with the fourth overall pick, but I think they believe there's some quality in the rounds that follow where they maybe could walk away with somebody that could come in and immediately play one of the tackle spots. Lance, let's make something very clear. We are not tapping phone lines. We are not in Dave Gettleman's basement. So we have no idea what is really going on close to the vest in terms of his plans for the draft. But when you hear statements of that nature, taking them at face value, I agree with you 150%. I think what Dave Gettleman is telling you there, and again, I'm simply looking at face value, is that the Giants do not have to take an offensive tackle at number four. What I would glean from this right now as I sit here today is that the Giants are very willing to move down a few spots in a deal and potentially grab one of several high-quality offensive tackles off of the board. Maybe it's down, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever it's going to take in order to pick up an extra pick. I think it was very clear from Gettleman's conference call that he's interested in in looking at one. He's interested in looking at a center as well. And I think if the Giants could wind up with three picks in the top 50 of this draft, you will probably see a tackle and a center and an edge rusher somewhere in those three. What's the order? I can't say for sure, but it does sound to me as though – that may be the top priority as they try to get this thing uh, going down uh, down the stretch. I'm glad you brought up the center position because that was also something that came up multiple times. First of all, the timeline for John Jalapio still remains up in the air, but they're hopeful that before camp starts, assuming the schedule plays out that way, that they'll know more in terms of his recovery from the Achilles injury. Spencer Pulley's still on the roster. They didn't rule out that that could still be a position they may address, but he did bring up, not just in the tackle conversation, but also the center conversation, Nick Gates' name. And I want to go back to, Paul, 
when Pat Shermer was still the head coach of this team and he had media sessions, every time Nick Gates' name was brought up, and maybe this is me reading into it a little too much, but I always felt he was very well-spoken about what Nick Gates brings to the team. He liked his work ethic. He liked his potential. And it seems as if Dave Gettleman yesterday on the conference call echoed a lot of the same sentiments that Pat Shermer brought up because he didn't rule him out as somebody that could win the starting right tackle job and referenced the fact that he got a lot of reps pretty much everywhere on the offensive line last year in practice, including the center spot. Well, you know I'm a big fan of Gates, have been ever since they signed him two years ago as an undrafted rookie free agent, and I've also speculated for months that because of the reps he got at center, that that may be something under consideration. The Giants, in my opinion, are going to go with the best five offensive linemen week one of the regular season. And if it turns out that Nick Gates is one of the best five offensive linemen, guess what, Lance? He's going to start somewhere along that line. Could it be right tackle? Could it be center? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's an injury that forces him to go to another position. Exactly. I I can't say that. What I can say is that Nick Cates is a good football player, and Dave Gettleman made it very clear to anybody who wasn't paying attention that he feels the same way. And I think his versatility bodes very well for him based on what Dave Gettleman said during the conference call. Let's switch over to the defensive side of the ball because then the other big part of the conversation was clearly the pass rush, something we've talked about on many programs over the course of the offseason. And He said that without a big-time pass rusher, a proven commodity on the roster as it stands right now, meaning he referenced, listen, in an ideal world, and I'm paraphrasing his words, Paul, he said, would I love to have two guys that could add up to 25 sacks and have done that in the past? He said, absolutely. Who wouldn't? But he brought up a point that I think you and I have talked about with respect to what Patrick Graham did with the Dolphins last year, going back to New England scheme that they're going to have to generate the pass rush and get a lot of people involved in the sack department through scheme. His exact phrases will have to come through scheme, end quote. And that, to me, is right in line what you and I have talked about more often than not. We certainly have many, many times. And, you know, I think there were some callers yesterday on that media line that were trying to prod him into suggesting that he should try to spend some money yeah. and retain either Marcus Golden or go after a Jadavion Clowney. And it was really very clearly uh, constructed when uh, when Gettleman answered by saying, you know, uh, you got you to worry about your cap situation and your money and you're t- planning for short term plus you're planning for long term. You can't manufacture pass rush. Uh, sometimes you have to scheme it. Well, somebody on Twitter got back to me and said, well, manufacturing pass rush, isn't that scheming it? And here's what I wrote back to that fan. I said, I suspect a better phrase. And again, I'm not going to put words in Dave's mouth but this is what i think he really meant is that you don't bypass rush in other words there is no place for fantasy football when you're talking about a pass rush you don't just pay a guy who's got terrific pass rush stats and think they will automatically duplicate them when they come to your team it doesn't work that way especially when these guys are commanding tremendous amounts of money that are attached to those sack numbers And so, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon the Giants with the guys that they have to develop as much as they possibly can and to try to increase their production from within. 
That's that's really where it's going to happen. And and it's going to be up to Patrick Graham as well as the positional coaches who are going to have to get the Giants into position where they can say, you know what, we now feel comfortable with the guys that we've got. I'm with you, and I think that's something, once again, that we've emphasized during our conversations about the pass rushing unit overall. The other thing that I wanted to add to your point about how you can't just go out and spend money, you have to take into consideration your plans throughout the remainder of the season, existing guys under contract as well as next offseason, because remember, cap space carries over. He referenced a number of players in terms of extensions, and the few guys that he brought up, he mentioned Dalvin Tomlinson's name. Jabril Peppers, Evan Ingram, and Saquon Barkley as all players to consider that you may want to give extensions to who are the young nucleus of your team and that you have to say to yourself, we may want to keep money available to negotiate and hammer out extensions. So that was part of the equation in addition to saying what your immediate needs are on the roster right now. Well, that goes back to what Kevin Abrams does as the cap specialist and assistant general manager on this team. He is very good about working the numbers and trying to do everything he can so that this team does not get squashed into a vice whereby then they're stuck and can't do certain things. They want to be able to have a little bit of breathing room at all times so that they can take care of their own and then go out like they have this past offseason and basically acquire almost a dozen free agents from other teams that they believe will upgrade a variety of spots on the roster. Two other things that I want to point out, and I'm curious your thoughts if anything else stood out that we haven't brought up yet, Paul, As I mentioned, this was mainly a free agency conference call, but there were a few topics related to the draft that were brought up. Number one was the fact that he was asked, in previous years, Dave Gettleman has said, you always want to address needs in free agency so that you position yourself wherever you pick in the first round to take the best player available. And he was asked, based on what you did in free agency, do you feel you're still in position to do that? He said that there's still work to be done, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. He did not shy away from that, but he did say that he thought they did address needs that will at least keep them in a position to go after the best player available. The second thing, somewhat related to the draft, both Dave Gettleman and Kevin Abrams were asked about how has the current environment, not being able to be in the facility, impacted the evaluation process. And Dave Gettleman said the one thing that he misses is when you bring a player into the facility or you can take them out for dinner, he really likes that one-on-one, getting to know them, seeing their facial expressions. I think he used the term, you know, sort of being able to touch them, feel their soul type of thing. Interacting with them. Exactly. So that is limited, but he feels as if they've still gotten enough, Paul, out of those FaceTime conversations because what Dave Gettleman emphasized is a big part of those conversations is he wants to be able to look the guy in the eye and see who they are and see how they react as opposed to just hearing their voice. So he feels that at least has given them access to them on that front. Well, in the same vein, the pro days also do similar things because these GMs and these coaches go to pro days and he talked about how often they will then maybe on the side uh, have a snack or have something to eat with the guy. And as they're sitting down at the table, they'll get to know him a whole lot better. And he said, you learn a lot about a player seeing not only how he interacts with you, but how he interacts with other people and then the environment that he is set up in. And so there's no question 
that there's going to be some pieces to the puzzle that are not going to be perfectly in place when they're going through their draft board. At the same time, you are right. Dave Gettleman did make it very clear to us that he thinks they've done as good a job as they can do. It's pretty smooth. It's been a good operation. Uh, He and Kevin Abrams both talked about the IT department and all the electronic things they've done to try to make sure things were running as smoothly as possible. And so I don't get the impression that he's at all nervous going into this draft. Maybe some teams are. Maybe that's why they have made remarks about uh, hoping the draft would be postponed. But you're not going to get that from the Giants because Dave Gettleman is a film junkie and a tape guru, and that's going to be where the emphasis is when these teams pick this year. And that is right up his alley. So, uh, hey, check a box for the Giants. You can lock him in his house as long as he has the ability to still watch film. He's in his own element. There's no doubt about that. Before we end the program, as we always do, we want to answer your Twitter questions. But before we get to that, Paul, I just want to leave the door open. Is there anything else that you took away from the conference call that we have not raised that you figure is worth bringing up? No, I really think that, uh, you know, this was a very generic call in terms of the specifics of the draft. We expect to hear more from Dave Gettleman later on, along with Chris Pettit, um, who is his uh, director of college scouting. And that will probably raise even more questions as we get closer to the draft. But as of now, yeah, the free agency was supposed to be the bulk of this call. And indeed, it was in addition to the social environment. I am curious about one thing, though. And it's unfortunate that, you know, we can't can't get a, a better bead on all of this stuff. I'd really like to know more about how some of these newcomers are connecting with their new teammates and how they're interacting. There are no mini camps. Yeah. There are no off-season programs, OTAs, and any of that stuff. And, you know, when they first signed with the Giants, we heard from them. But I'd like to know a little more about how that's working out because you've got to get familiar with your teammates because once you hit the field, there's not a lot of time to acclimate yourselves. Well, related to that, before we get into the Twitter questions, yesterday, actually, It was widely reported by many NFL reporters that the virtual offseason program is going to start April 20th, which is next Monday, and nobody is going to be allowed back in their facilities until every team has access to their facilities. That was a big part of this agreement that was hammered out, Paul, between the league and the players' Mm -hmm. union. To be fair. Go ahead. No, that, that's the yeah. point. Oh, to, oh I thought you were going to say something. Yeah, no, 100%, because it's all about an equal playing field. So I am completely in support of that, and I think that's a big part of that agreement. You, you can't leave it open-ended that, let's say, as soon as New York is in better shape than all of a sudden Wisconsin, you're going to let New York resume activities, and then Wisconsin's going to be in a much more precarious spot. So that's important to emphasize. The reason I'm bringing that up, Paul, anybody who wants to have definitive timetables about training camp and this and that, that holds true for training camp too. Nobody's going to be given the green light to return to their facility until the country as a whole is on the same page. That's just something to keep in mind. But with respect to the virtual offseason program, they're going to be able to start next week. They're going to be able to give the players the playbook. They're going to be able to have remote workouts. There is limitation on how much money Teams can provide each player to purchase their own equipment if they don't have the ability to get equipment in their current house or perhaps a local closed-off facility. So the organization has just been laid out. I don't think at this point, Paul, any player can answer how things are going because they really have yet to delve into that side of things. 
Well, I guess what I'm talking about, and it's usually something that we discuss regarding offensive linemen more than any other position, and that is guys like to go out and go bowling or play pool or play cards or just have a steak dinner together. And those things, if nothing else, have been lost. The camaraderie, more than anything, is what I'm talking about. The familiarity, the camaraderie, the getting to know guys, getting to know their families, trying to get on the same page mentally and emotionally, like, hey, we're one team. We are giants. I can't tell you how many times over the years guys have come in to an organization and said, well, you know, it wasn't until I made that first big hit or I made my first big play either in camp or even in the preseason or even the regular season. Sometimes it takes that long before I finally felt at home, like I really belonged on this team. Well, there's going to be a lot of that happening this year. Especially when you have a lot of new faces on a team. There's no doubt about that. All right, let's jump to your Twitter questions. And a reminder, you can submit your questions, giants.com slash podcasts slash BBK questions or using hashtag Giants chat on Twitter. And of course, you can interact and send them in directly to Paul and I. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W, and he is at Giants W-F-A-N. This first question comes from Brandon Paul. He writes, I am 100% sold on Isaiah Simmons, like plenty of Giants fans, but it's worrying me that we re-signed David Mayo and just signed the ex-Packer linebacker. He's referring to Blake Martinez, of course. Does that mean we go offensive line with our pick at number four? Well, you know how I feel, but it's not my pick. And if you base your prediction off of what Dave Gettleman said yesterday, it certainly seems like the most likely scenario or most desired scenario may be to trade down a few spots, take an offensive lineman with the first pick, and then again, in the in the second and third picks, somehow maybe get the edge rusher and get the center. That would be what I read off of yesterday's comments. Now, again, who knows? <laughs> this is draft time. You know as well as I do, Lance, that there is a lot of deception and misdirection going on, although 100%. Dave Gettleman is the kind of guy who basically isn't afraid to tell you what he thinks. No. So, yeah. so at the same time, maybe I'm reading it exactly like he said it. Well, the one thing that I read into, as we referenced earlier, was the statement about depth on the offensive line, and that was why they made certain decisions at free agency. So if you read into that, you know, maybe that means – they feel there's multiple options at offensive line slash tackle, and maybe that would give them more freedom and flexibility to pick the best player available at another position. I think you could look at it that way. But getting back to the question by Brandon, I don't think David Mayo being re-signed or Blake Martinez being brought in has any bearing that would prevent them from grabbing Isaiah Simmons, at least if you look at it through that angle. Because how many times have I referenced, Paul, if you go through free agency, the draft in recent history, they've addressed the position in free agency, and then they wound up drafting it again, and then vice versa. So don't read into maybe a linebacker or two coming into the mix, and that means that Isaiah Simmons would be a duplication, considering Simmons is one of the most versatile players we've seen come in through the draft in years. And I understand that thought as well, Lance. When you look at Simmons, and I've said this many times on the record, he is an impact guy. He is a guy who will give offensive coordinators some nightmares when they're trying to game plan for the Giants on Monday night. And so, for me, I'd still have no problem taking him, no matter who they've signed during the offseason. This comes from Sam G., a rather lengthy one surrounding the quarterback situation 
slash trading, perhaps, for the Giants. Quick Giants draft question. If the draft goes one Burrow to Cincinnati, two Chase Young to the Redskins, three Jeff Okuda to Detroit, as many, including myself, believe it will go after the Darius Slay trade, what is your opinion of what do you think the chances of the Giants calling Jacksonville, dangling the number four pick for Tua in exchange for the number 9, 20, 42, and 140th picks, and maybe a six this year, or even a day two, three pick the next year. Could this strategy also be used with the Chargers in exchange for the number 6, 37, 112, and maybe a second next year? This all given the assumption that if two is there at five, the Dolphins would obviously take him. So these deals would give the quarterback needy teams the ability to hop over Miami. I would find it difficult to believe, even with the injuries and COVID-19 preventing team medicals, that Tua isn't thought of by most organizations as a franchise-changing prospect. So basically, the premise of the question is, if it goes Burrow, Young, and Okuda, would the Giants be open to moving down to Jacksonville spot or the Chargers spot if they want to get ahead of the Dolphins and those two teams want a quarterback? But here's the thing, Paul, before you throw in your two cents. That's all assuming, though, that those two teams are enamored with Tua and may not feel really good about Herbert or another quarterback like Jordan Love, who they are perfectly content with having fall to them. So you have to operate under the premise that you know for a fact those two teams definitely want to move past the Dolphins to take Tua. And if they feel good about other quarterbacks, why would they have the urgency to move up? Look, I'm going to go back to something that Dave Gettleman did in each of the past two drafts, and it's a roundabout way to answer this question, which, by the way, was longer than the Irishman. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and, and simply put, if the Giants have conviction in a guy who they absolutely positively want and must have, then you don't even bother with trading back. You just take the guy. And, and all of the speculation about them sliding back a few spots is worthless. Now, do I think that that's something that's on the table and could be their primary plan? Yes, I think it's all very, very possible. But at the same time, if they really, really are salivating for a particular guy, then Dave should just take him and close the book. Last question comes from Andrew. Do you believe this is a make-or-break year for Lorenzo Carter? He seems like a great guy, has a ton of athleticism, but the production has not been there. How do you believe Patrick Graham may best utilize Carter to mold him into that elite-esque edge rusher I feel he should be? Well, Lorenzo Carter's entering his third NFL season, and they always tell you that is the breakout year for guys who truly have something to bring to the table. Quite honestly, I like Lorenzo Carter as a stand-up guy off the edge. I thought he was down with his hand in the dirt far too often last year, and, and I think it really hurt his production. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is not an excuse for Lorenzo Carter, I agree with you, the third year is usually that potential breakout year, but keep in mind, for a young player now, he's going to have his third defense in the span of four years. And when you put that on the plate of a young player, sometimes you just never know how they're going to respond, especially if you keep moving them around. And what I mean by that, Paul, is he was in the Georgia defense in 2017, 18 and 19, he's with Betcher, and now he's going to be with Patrick Graham. So once again, here's another year where not only are you expecting him to make a jump in the third year, but now you're also expecting him to learn a completely new scheme where he may be asked to do things differently than, of course, what Betcher asked him to do. So you at least need to take that into consideration when you're expecting expecting certain production out of him. Well, he played all over the place with Georgia. So he it's did. not just what happened in the NFL. He's been playing all over the place ever since he got out of high school. Fair point. 
Let's now jump to a bit of new Giants news before we wrap up shop. And just as we're recording this program, the Giants have now announced that they have signed Drayvon Askew-Henry, who played in the XFL for the New York Guardians. So this is another addition to the secondary, and this transaction is contingent upon Askew-Henry passing a physical when travel restrictions are lifted. 5'11", 187 pounds, and you had an opportunity to see him up close and personal, Paul, because you did attend a few of those XFL games this season. I went to two of the home games at uh, MetLife Stadium, and you know, Askew Henry, to me, we started out as, as a slot cover guy for them, and then they had to move him outside to corner because they had some thin spots out there and, and basically asked him to play out of position. He's not really suited to be out there, and he's not really suited to be a safety either, which is really where when he came into the league with the Steelers originally out of West Virginia, that's what they were going to ask him to be. They wanted him to be a safety because that's what he played with with the Mountaineers. Well, the thing about it is because he's not exactly blazing fast, he doesn't necessarily have the center field coverage in his repertoire, and if he's going to be put on the boundary, he doesn't necessarily have the deep speed. But when you put him at the slot, he's got quickness, he's physical, he anticipates well, got good ball skills. He's going to compete. He is going to compete very hard for that slot corner spot on the Giants defense. He had five games under his belt with the Guardians, 12 tackles, 10 solo, including a season-high five tackles, three solo in the season opener against Tampa Bay. And also, you mentioned he was at West Virginia. Well, he was with the Steelers last offseason from April to August. He just missed out on making the 53-man roster. So he already has some NFL experience under his belt in terms of being with Pittsburgh. So that's the latest addition to the Giants secondary. Once again, defensive back Drayvon Askew-Henry, who is with the New York Guardians of the XFL. That is going to wrap up the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody tuning in here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as podcast platforms across the board. Paul, always enjoy the conversation going back and forth, and you and I will resume the conversation a little bit later on this week. Good to be with you again, Lance. Stay well. You as well. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.